0: From Podcast
1: One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA.
2: You can see uh, ships, aircrafts, tanks, but you can't see algorithms. And that makes it uh, difficult.
1: That's Admiral Manfred Nielsen, Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Transformation with NATO. And he talked with us about NATO's most pressing concern as the future approaches rapidly.
2: Our biggest concern is currently how to deal with big data. We in the military have to understand how to deal with data. Data may be more precious than gold and diamonds and oil in the future.
1: On this program, we'll hear from Nielsen. We'll also hear from the FBI. And we'll hear from cybersecurity executives about exactly difficult this problem is, and will lay out for you why you are the key to solving this problem. Coming up on this edition of Target USA,
0: the National Security Podcast.
1: From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. This is Target USA,
0: the National Security Podcast.
1: I'm JJ Green. For more than a decade, U.S. and other Western military officials have been warning that the pace of change will be the biggest threat to the national security of every nation. The driving factor in that is the threat of cyber vulnerabilities. One of the key reasons why it's such a danger is the difficulty in painting a picture of the threat to capture the attention of the average person.
2: Cyber, you can see uh, ships, aircrafts, tanks, but you can't see algorithms.
1: That's Admiral Manfred Nielsen, Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Transformation for NATO. And when we sat down with him to talk several weeks ago, He put the threat into very simple terms. And he made it clear there is no dividing line when it comes to who is threatened more by cyber vulnerabilities.
2: We have to understand that you can't separate military from civilian cyber. Perhaps cyber will have much more impact on the civilian life than in military life. Uh, Why? You remember perhaps the um, attack which has happened on the... uh, uh, hospitals in in uk a couple of months ago and people people were focused when they recognized okay you can uh, can execute a kind of uh, silent war without u- using kinetics and uh, which has uh, a lot of impact on people's mind and the society and that's i think um, uh, uh, important to, to, to understand
4: It's a concern for, I'm sure, for the military as well as the other sort of parts of the national security establishment. And I think the primary concern there is China.
1: That's Benjamin Reed, senior manager for cyber espionage analysis in the intelligence unit at cybersecurity firm FireEye.
4: We've seen with the OPM hack, with the sort of health insurance, hotel stuff, uh, where China's really gone in and stolen a huge amount of data. And they have the sort of, they have the computing power, they have the other stuff, where they're able to sort of index that all together and really get a picture of American society. So if you have everybody's security clearance information, you know who's working for the U.S. government, who has worked for the U.S. government, who is the cousin of somebody who worked for the U.S. government, and you can identify people that, if they travel to China, you need to watch them. If people have relatives in China, Um, things like that, and really identify pressure points. So big data is definitely uh, something of concern because people, where we have concentrated data, get stolen and get exploited.
1: And believe it or not, that is the number one headache for NATO right now.
2: Our biggest concern is currently how to deal with big data because I'm deeply convinced that uh, those who get rid of data are the uh, future successive uh, future uh, future winners perhaps data as we talk every second the amount of data is uh, increasing significantly and um, we in the military have to understand how to deal with data data may be more precious than gold and uh, diamonds and oil in the future those who are, uh, the, the guys uh, who can deal with data, who are uh, aware about the impact of, of, of data, they will, uh, they will rule the world. And that's another part of the problem, getting people to
1: understand how big data impacts them personally. Again, Benjamin Reed from FireEye.
4: What you need to be aware of depends on who you are. If you're a employee of the Department of Defense you definitely need to be worried about nation state stuff because you may have access to data that's of interest to Russia. If you run a grocery store in Texas, you may, the Russians maybe don't want your information, but you can definitely get ransomware on your computer. You you may have payment card data that could be stolen. So the ability of people from really around the world to target you through the internet, it's such a flattening of the geography there, means that you need to, you don't need to necessarily be aware of everything, but you need to sort of evaluate, okay, what do I have of value that is on a computer?
1: That question is very easy to answer for large corporations. It's millions, and in some cases, billions of dollars in assets, intellectual property, and even human resources. Add that to the fact that that tens of thousands or more of baby boomers with security clearances are in the process of leaving the U.S. government, then it's clear why the nation's adversaries are pouring unprecedented resources into efforts to get at what's in their heads. Recently, on 60 Minutes, John Demers, Assistant Attorney General of the National Security Division at the Justice Department, along with Bill Evanina, Director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center talked about the urgent threat the U.S. is facing. Brian Dugan, Assistant Special Agent in Charge for Counterintelligence at the Washington Field Office of the FBI, told Target USA Demirs and Evanina hit the nail on the head.
3: In the six Minutes interviews, I think you couldn't say it any better than Assistant Attorney General Demirs and then Mr. Uh, Evanina. Uh, where they basically both said that it's unprecedented uh, the, the threat from our foreign adversary, specifically China, on the economic espionage, on the espionage front, that there's uh, such a desire for our foreign adversaries to gain access to classified information, to U.S. government intentions. And I think the large population is not something that's being calculated by our foreign intelligence service uh, adversaries, but I think it's just a, uh, um, a vulnerability that we in the U.S. government have that we're aware of, and it's just their luck that it's becoming available.
1: And every nation-state cyber activity that's going after the U.S. has a different objective. Benjamin Reed, FireEye.
4: With Russia, we see that the majority of their stuff is traditional espionage targeted against governments, so ministries of foreign affairs, ministries of defense. Um, and that's very active. Russia is the most sophisticated of these, these groups. Um, their malware just is is a little bit more uh, effective. They'll do things a little bit more sneaky. Um, but the other thing that what sets Russia apart is their use of cyber for real world impacts. And that's we've seen in a number of different ways. We've seen them turn off the power in Ukraine. We've seen them obviously interfere in the U.S. elections, hack information and leak it. Uh, But that's not the only things we've seen. We've seen them target industrial control systems in the Middle East. We've seen them really go after sporting organizations and leak that information kind of in response to some of the, the doping bans of Russian athletes. So Russia really is active and sees cyber as a way to get sort of real world effects. We also see some of that from Iran. Um, a little bit more similar profile, though Iran does their effects in different ways. We've seen sort of wiper attacks from Iran going back to uh, incidents at Saudi Aramco five or six years ago. And then as recently as this past December.
1: Wiper attacks deals with a type of malware. A wiper is a class of malware whose intention is to wipe clean the hard drive of the computer it affects.
4: Where they'll they'll compromise A network and they'll go in and they'll they'll wipe a bunch the information on a bunch of the computers and render them useless and we've seen them primarily use that regionally against sort of their perceived adversaries in the gulf uh, as a way to disrupt the economic life and things like that Um, but we do see iran active in the united states in europe sometimes in east asia but that's been more stealing information Um, a couple of isolated disruptive attacks in the u.s But that's been more stealing information, though with the current tensions, we do worry that as kind of relations between U.S. and Iran deteriorate, they may use that destructive capability against the United States. So that's one of the things we're watching for.
1: And while a lot of people may be watching to see what Iran does, its capabilities may have been limited because the U.S. covertly launched offensive cyber operations against Iranian intelligence computers back in June. The cyber strikes, which were approved by President Trump, targeted computer systems used to control missile and rocket launches that were chosen several months ago for potential disruption.
4: Finally, there's North Korea. North Korea obviously has has destructive activity. You have that with the Sony attacks back in 2014, but it's not something they've really used recently. Recently, North Korea has pivoted to being almost a cyber crime actor where a lot of the stuff we see from them is financially motivated and that's been high profile things like the swift thefts sort of uh publicly reported bank of, bank of bangladesh stuff but also we've seen a lot of targeting of cryptocurrencies from them cryptocurrency exchanges cryptocurrency users things like that where they're going in and they're trying to steal bitcoin and other stuff because that's there's a lot of sort of financial sanctions on north Korea, so it's So it's hard for them to sort of do business in dollars or things like that. But Bitcoin, you can't really enforce sanctions. It's a lot easier to be anonymous, um, things like that. So if they're able to steal Bitcoin and then sort of launder that into money, um, we've seen that from them. They still do a little bit of traditional espionage, but that's been primarily focused on South Korea, uh, on think tanks, kind of trying to get at other perceptions of how they're looked at throughout the world.
1: And all of this is taking place during a time frame in which hackers are better than they've ever been. And here's something that paints a picture of just how good they are these days. Have you ever heard of something called breakout time? Breakout time is a key metric used to track the speed of hackers once they break into an organization and then begin to move laterally onto other systems that they're targeting to get at the crown jewels in a network and begin propagating their advanced exploits across the system. It's really an indication of how effective they are at hands-on keyboard activity. Just how skilled their operatives are.
0: There's really nothing worse than a highly skilled, highly motivated bad actor that can operate at speed.
1: James Yeager is vice president of public sector and healthcare care at CrowdStrike.
0: Russians and uh, Russian nation state actors, or bears as we call them, are the fastest adversaries with an average of 18 minutes and 49 seconds now that's i mean that's incredibly fast and demonstrates how skilled and how determined this group is north korea was second we call them chalimas they have an average time of two hours and 20 minutes chinese nation state actors or pandas as we refer to them as are third their breakout times an average of four hours and 26 seconds uh iranian uh, nation state actors or kittens came in fourth with an average breakout time of five hours, nine minutes, and four seconds. And then lastly, e-crime actors known as spiders break out the slowest of all the adversary groups uh, with an average time of nine hours, 43 minutes, and 23 seconds.
1: There are two key points to remember. Number one, the home nations of all of those hacker groups that Jaeger mentioned, except the e-crime actors, are adversaries of the U.S. And number two, they all get help from their governments in their exploits against whatever their targets are. And this is why NATO is so concerned about the problem. Again, Admiral Nielsen.
2: NATO is always only as strong as the nations are because a, uh, NATO is not an anonymous uh, organization. We depend on the support um, we receive from, from the nations. And that's a challenge because We are competing with industry and others about experts in cyber. And the amount of experts is limited. And Admiral Nielsen said
1: that limitation on the number of experts available was a key reason why NATO decided not to build its own cyber command. He seemed to
2: suggest it would be like
1: building a house with no one to live in it.
2: Build a new command and then ask for what purpose. And we uh, we, um, we were uh, aware that these experts are limited, really limited, and we are in a competition with the nations. And once again, let me stress, when I'm talking about cyber, cyber will have much more impact on the civilian life than on the military life.
1: Ed Nielsen has hit on another key point.
4: Good morning, JJ. What would you like for breakfast? My senses tell me the refrigerator has lots of options inside.
1: Every day, with more and more daily tasks being computerized in some way, from banking to cars to door locks, right down to appliances like washers and dryers and refrigerators in the home, ransomware attacks could completely shut down every aspect of our lives. This is why public sector experts are much more in demand and why NATO didn't want to compete with them.
2: Let me stress an example. When I was younger and I went to the local bank, 70% of the people were engaged in customer services. They gave, gave you the money, they wrote the shacks and all these things. Nowadays, when you are going to the local bank, you will find an ATM outside and 70% of the people are engaged in protection of data, which is cyber. And I think that's important to understand uh, and to to, to tell ingoing stories to to people. What cyber is, talking about algorithms doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise people will not be aware about the day-to-day impact cyber will have on their civilian life.
1: And the FBI's Brian Dugan says they are well aware of that challenge. So what they've done is tried to put together a team to educate people in their area of operations about the problem.
3: We're getting uh, working groups together that'll go across government uh, agencies to make sure that one, uh, the outreach to not only our federal partners about the um, internal risk and the retiree risk, but also to our corporate partners to uh, educate on the risk that the uh, enemy is looking for, any and all opportunities to collect information about the U.S. government, the U.S. intelligence community, and uh, U.S. government, or excuse me, U.S. company secrets and advantage R&D technology and our academic sector. So we are uh, in full, uh, we're in a full court press with outreach uh, uh, to get the education out there. And the audience is um, uh, open to listening about this more and more these days because they see the, uh, the transfer of uh, uh, technology, the transfer of information, uh, and companies are seeing their bottom line slip because it used to be we wanted to have uh, openings into the market and the Chinese uh, government controls their own economy, whereas the United States is, the economy is on its own and the government's on its own and there's a separation for good reason. Um, but we don't have spies, as Mr. Demur said, stealing secrets from other foreign companies to give to uh, Google. Uh, Google has to do their, their own thing. Uh, but in China, the Communist Party is going to support their own companies and so this is not just a FBI versus the Chinese government. This is a whole of government, a whole of the United States to work together to protect our own bottom line, our own interests, and our own secrets. As
1: you might have figured out by now, from a U.S. perspective, there is a correlation between hackers, data, and espionage. That connection is that the bad actors, whether they're criminal, hackers, or nation-state agents, or both, they're all interested in getting their hands on U.S. data, and they're all converging at the same time. And that raises a question for the FBI. Can spies slip through in, in Washington? Because you guys are, cover this place like a blanket,
3: and you're, but you're very busy. I mean, there's a lot going on. Can they slip through? Of course, there's always going to be moments that we're going to have people uh, decide to cooperate with the enemy. And we're going to find them, we're going to catch them. Um, like I said, it's just not the FBI, it's not just the U.S. government keeping an eye out uh, in the watchtower. It is everybody involved that we get our uh, contract, uh, defense contractors on the lookout. Uh, We have their subcontractors that work with them on the lookout. Um, We have uh, active engagement with uh, multiple fronts in the private sector, uh, academic sector. So it's not just one agency or just one government that's doing this. We are all doing it in partnership um, to make sure that we don't let things slip by.
1: But the key, according to the experts, is that everyone needs to recognize that we're no longer protected or insulated from hostile forces overseas. They can rob us blind from the comfort of their own home, five miles away or 5,000 miles away. They can slip into our pockets and steal everything we own because of technology. Technology that Admiral Nielsen says we need to learn
2: more about. Uh, look at um, artificial intelligence. Yeah? Everybody has artificial intelligence in its pocket, the cell phone. Yeah? But uh, how to adapt these artificial intelligence um, in the military environment? That's important. In the past, we when we are talking about the NDPP process, um, we, we, we talked about tank ships, and airplanes. But you will not find any clue about artificial intelligence, disruptive technologies, and all these things. And that's, I think, important to understand. Over decades, military development influenced pretty much civilian development. And I believe, I can't identify the the right time, but let me say three, four, five years ago, it changed. Civilian development influenced the military. But we didn't accept uh, this. The Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts of the world, they are the trendsetters of the future. And I think uh, for us it's important to collaborate in order to achieve resilience, uh, to collaborate with these um, uh, trendsetters. So the um, interaction between military and civilian world is not an option, it's a must.
1: Admiral, the... the piece I hear you mentioning in this conversation that you know is very clear that there's an you know there is a, there is a divide. There um, is the military is very disciplined. There's no doubt about it. If it wasn't, it couldn't. It wouldn't be effective uh, no matter where you go. But one thing you see, and I can say for sure, in the United States and perhaps in other places too, civilians have a difficult time focusing on the the danger the reality, the problem of cyber, perhaps because they can't visualize it. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time, I or, and others spend a lot of time trying to tell people, hey, this could be a devastating uh, attack or a problem. But as you say, you can't see algorithms,
2: and people are like, yeah, sure, but I just need to get back to my Facebook, okay? so You know, and that's important. You know, we are using in our civilian time, in, in our civilian uh, life these new technologies yeah and we enjoy it but to implement this in the protection of a country that's a challenge you know two years ago in germany uh, they sold 200 uh, 100000 micro drones uh, helicopters as christmas gift but when we are talking about implementing these uh, drones in the civilian environment, you will see how many lawmakers have their concerns about this. The technology is available, so I think it's important to understand that our adversaries will not hesitate to use these. And I think it's a a a a, a task for military as well as political leaders to in, explain to the citizens the dangers as well as the advantages. We are not, we can't make our choice. Hey, this I like, that I dislike. I think that's a, uh, that's a uh, unacceptable. That's Admiral
1: Manfred Nielsen, Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Transformation with NATO. Just to bring the point home about why everyone at every level needs to focus on cyber and the risk attached, here's a story that occurred just yesterday, July 16th, 2019. Cyber attacks are exploding in every country around the world, and even on the high seas, and a serious problem has been uncovered. In February, a large freighter, it's called a deep draft vessel, weighing probably about 100,000 tons, was headed for the port of New York and New Jersey, and they reported they were experiencing a significant cyber incident impacting their shipboard network. An investigation by the Coast Guard determined that malware had significantly degraded the ship's onboard computer. And here's the problem. Today, engines and navigation systems on vessels like that are controlled by mouse clicks. Had an advanced cyber-attacker with malicious intent taken over that vessel, disaster could have struck the port of New York and New Jersey. What's more important and disturbing for U.S. and international maritime authorities, this was not an isolated incident. And here's a really concerning piece of information. The navigation systems on that vessel and other key functions were controlled by the same computer that the crew could use for email, banking, and other personnel matters. As a result of this incident, the Coast Guard issued recommendations, strong recommendations, that vessel and facility owners and operators and other responsible parties wake up to the realities of cybersecurity. More details about this will be coming out on the Target USA Twitter feed at TUSA Podcast. That hopefully puts this all into context for you. Thanks for listening today. We appreciate your time. I'm deeply grateful that you gave us the opportunity to share a little bit of your time. And that's going to do it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up on our next program.
3: As the world struggles with what's real and what's not, our frame of reference is becoming harder and harder to shape. Deep fakes. It's a technique For human image
1: synthesis based on artificial intelligence. It's used to combine and superimpose existing images and videos onto source images or videos by using a simple technique. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. That voice sounded like former President Barack Obama, and the video looked like him as well. But neither was true. While it seems funny, sometimes it can have serious implications for the U.S. national security community.
3: Today, when image or pixel or video manipulation is becoming more and more available, I have to, we have to reset confidence levels.
1: That was former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Robert Cardillo. And on our next program, we'll examine in-depth deep fakes and the problems they can cause. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at WTOP.com. Also, check out our newsletter, Inside the SCIF. You can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. This is our weekly email that rounds up all of the interesting national security news that you don't know about. And just one final thing. Please subscribe to our podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA.
0: The National Security Podcast.
1: Calling all true crime fans. The Court Junkie podcast is now on podcast one. Imagine being wrongfully convicted for a crime you didn't commit or a killer is on the loose, even though there is enough evidence for an arrest. The Court Junkie podcast shines a light on the injustices of the judicial system with deep dives into courtroom documents and interviews with those closest to the case. Download new episodes, of Court Junkie Podcast on Apple Podcast and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.